Section 69 of China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 1, China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 69. How the Arrow War Began by W. A. P. Martin In 1850, what has been called an old-fashioned rebellion broke out in China. The leader was one Hung Tzu Tzuin. He called himself a Christian, and made his camp into a sort of Sunday school, though some of the doctrines taught there were anything but Christian. His followers called their leader Tai Ping Wang, that is, Prince of Peace, because they believed that his victory would drive the Tartar rule from the country, and would give the throne to Chinese sovereigns forever. There were neither telegraphs nor railroads in the land. A leader could collect about him a few thousand malcontents, swoop down on a city, add it to his force, and continue without much opposition until one or more provinces, and an army of two hundred thousand men stood at his back, before the imperial ears at Peking had received a hint as to the disturbance. For some years, Hung Tzu Tsuen met with much success. In 1853, he captured Nanking and proclaimed himself emperor. This was trouble sufficient for an empire, but while this rebellion was still going on, the Arrow War broke out. The Editor In the autumn of 1856, a chance spark at Canton produced an explosion that shook the empire and opened wider the breach already made in the wall of exclusiveness. The occurrence was on this wise. The Lorcha Arrow, a Chinese vessel flying the British flag, a privilege for which she had, in conformity with the vicious system then in vogue, paid a small fee to the government of Hong Kong, was seized by the Chinese authorities, and her crew thrown into prison on a charge of piracy. The British consul lodged a protest, claiming jurisdiction on the grounds that the Lorcha was registered in a British colony, and demanding, not merely that the prisoners be restored to the deck of their vessel, but that the British flag be hoisted at the masthead, in expiation of the affront offered in hauling it down. The viceroy, who was notoriously proud and obstinate, yielded so far as to send the captives under guard to the consulate. It takes two to make a quarrel, but no two could be better fitted to produce one, and to nurse it into a war, than the two who were parties in this dispute. Had prompt release of the captives been accepted as sufficient amends, there would have been no war, at least no arrow war. But the consul, young, hot-headed, and inexperienced, unwilling to abate a jot of his demands, refused to receive the captives. They were carried back to the viceroy, who, in a fit of anger, ordered them to be beheaded. He was a truculent wretch, who boasted of the thousands he had decapitated for complicity in rebellion. No wonder, therefore, that he was hasty in cutting off the heads of a dozen boatmen. At this stage, the consul referred the matter to the governor of Hong Kong, and the viceroy proving obdurate to all attempts to extract an apology, the governor placed the affair in the hands of Admiral Seymour. That brave officer, having lost an eye by the explosion of a Russian torpedo in the Baltic, could see only one way to negotiate. Appearing before the city, he invited the viceroy to meet him outside the gates. The stubborn old Mandarin declining the interview, he announced his intention of calling at the viceregal palace. This he did at the hour named, though he had to blow up one of the city gates in order to keep his engagement. He, however, reckoned without his host. The viceroy was not at home, 
and the little squad of marines, only three hundred, withdrew to their ships, their daring feat having had no other effect than to fan a firebrand into a conflagration. Scarcely had they retired when the foreign quarter was set on fire by an infuriated populace. The foreigners took refuge on the shipping, and the shipping dropped down the river to Hong Kong. The little settlement at Hong Kong was in no small peril, its chief danger being a possible rising of the Chinese. But overwhelming as were their numbers, they refrained from open action, trusting, perhaps, to the effect of poison, which Alum, the city baker, mixed with his dough. The mixture was too strong and defeated its object. Only two or three died, though many suffered, and it was agreed on all hands that for once there was too much alum in the bread. This rupture was recognized as the beginning of a war, and troops were dispatched to the scene. End of section 69. Recording by Todd.